not only performed uh, on television and in Las Vegas, but he, I mean, he's world-renowned for his uh, illusion and his act. And, and uh, more recently, he was on uh, the Lawrence O'Donnell program called The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC. And uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, who's a cultural progressive liberal, uh, was tiring of the, the infighting, the political nastiness that was taking place in Washington. So he decided to conduct an experiment where he had Penn um, and, uh, and a pastor, a priest, um, come in, Father James Martin, and they had a very civil discussion about faith and reason. And, and at the end of this thing, uh, Penn rearticulated some of these thoughts when he said, to Lawrence O'Donnell, the one kind of person I have a lot of trouble understanding is the kind of person that says the existence of God or religion doesn't matter. It's not an important decision. He concluded, I think it's vitally important. It's what all of our lives are based on. I, today I'm going to conclude a series that we began at the beginning of January called the Nuts and Bolts of Church. And the object of this series has been to kind of explain the parts of what make our particular church cook and, and why we would feel a compulsion to do that. And we started off with the scriptures and so we attempted to try to say that the things we do are really driven by a mandate given in scripture. And today uh, we're gonna continue along those lines and talk about the subject of evangelism. Now if you don't know what the word evangelism is, um, I, I can assure you that it may perhaps not be a part of the conversation you've had in your life well, um, you know, uh, over the course of a, a discussion at the water cooler at work. Maybe like me, you were raised as a Roman Catholic, and that was just not a word that was thrown around a lot in our church. And so the idea of going about uh, the process of telling others about Christ and this discussion of evangelism was not a part of your life. Um, I blogged on that this past week about uh, what it means to uh, uh, you know, evangelize, what we're after as a church when we talk about reaching out to others. Um, the word evangelism is, it comes from the Greek word evangelion. evangelion. It's, it's very hard to say it in, in English. But uh, at the same time, there are three Greek words that are very similar to each other. All right? And this, these words uh, mean the gospel, they mean the word to preach and the word evangelist. Now, they're all rooted in this one same particular Greek word. And their associations are important for us to note. Uh, the, the gospel, the word gospel, which is euangelion, means good news. All right? The word preach, which is euangelizo, is, it means to bring the good news. And the Greek word evangelist Ungelietes, I think is the way you pronounce that, forgive me, uh, means the one who declares good news. And so over 50 times in the New Testament, there is this combination of terms put together to give us this prescription that evangelism is sharing the gospel. It is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not just for ministers. It's a mandate that was given to the church as a whole, to individuals within the church. This concept of going out and telling others is a subject, and this is what I blogged about this past week at chuckryer.com. Uh, just a little plug there. Uh, what, I, what I talked about is how uncomfortable that discussion sometimes makes people. 
you know, the idea that we would have a conversation, that we would be saying that one of the things that you need to do if you're going to be a believer in Jesus is actually tell others about Jesus. The mere discussion of that makes some Christians pucker up really tight. And I know, because I'm one of them. And, And in my history as a Christian, there have been times where I thought, I really don't feel like having this be a part of my life because it means real uncomfortable change for me. But I got over it when I started to see the excitement associated with being a part of the mission of God. So let me put you at ease in a couple of ways by first um, saying why we don't do evangelism. Now I'll eventually get to our text today, but I just, I just want some of you who already kind of like when we talk about giving, you know, it's like, oh boy, we're talking about giving. Uh, when we talk about evangelism, let me tell you, we don't do evangelism because of our guilt. All right, we, we don't encourage it. We would discourage anybody from telling somebody else about Jesus because they feel bad about it or because they feel like they have to. Uh, you, you can never get to the place where you feel like if you don't do this, there's going to be some eternal regret that you're going to have. I have to tell you on a, on a subtext note, you know, no, in your life, God did not hinge your knowledge of him on somebody else's obedience or disobedience. So likely, he's not hinging somebody else's uh, life with him on whether or not you step forward to speak. That said, we, we don't motivate, we don't push anybody by guilt. We don't say to anybody, you, you, you have to tell others because uh, if you don't do it, the world is, you know, it's your fault that the world won't know God. Uh, the other thing we don't do is, is we don't do evangelism or tell others about Jesus uh, because uh, functionally, in some way, it, it provides gain for us. Right? So we don't do uh, evangelism because we think there's something we're going to get uh, through this. Um, we think that there's uh, some good things that will come as a result of it, but if you look at people who bang on your door, whether it would be in your neighborhood, the Jehovah's Witness coming to the door, or every now and again you see the guys from I call them the, the religious geek squad, um, uh, and with all due respect to the Mormons, that they dress just like the tech guys at Best Buy, and so, you know, I, I, you, you'll see them, they'll kind of be riding around on their bikes, and, you know, theologically speaking, these people go about telling others that performs a function of securing their salvation. They do it because they're commanded to, and if they don't, there's jeopardy that they could face because of that. And so we don't encourage evangelism by virtue of we think that somehow or another you're doing it or not doing it is going to affect your eternal destiny in some way. We do evangelism in part because it's obedience to Christ. And following Jesus means doing what Jesus tells you to do. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus says, Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Uh, We also are told in Luke 15 in Jesus' parable of the lost sheep that it's imperative that we go, we leave the 99 to go find the one lost one. This mandate to reach out to others, and not just by caring for their physical needs, but by actually speaking the truth to them, is laced all the way through the Old Testament and is, is virtually the history of the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's all about the proclamation of the good news of being restored 
to God. So in part, it's obedience. And the other part is, it's, and this is really where I want to emphasize our time today, is that it really is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to give. If I hit the lottery and this past week somebody hit the Powerball, an individual, like 400 million, if they kept all that to themselves, we would think them the most selfish person in the world. And, and, and if you hit the lottery, you would share it with those you love. You'd care for the needs of the people, particularly the people that you love. And what we think of when we think of our sharing of the gospel, it's really rooted in the word share. We would presume that you have something that's of value that you are giving away. And if you don't, and if I don't have something that we consider that valuable, then that's the question we need to start asking, is why in the world is this not more valuable to me that I would want to share this with others? The thing that keeps most people I know, most people I know from sharing their faith is a fear of what others will think about them. In fact, there are many Christian leaders and so-called Christian pastors and teachers and authors who are not just shying away from teaching about the consequences of rejecting Christ. They're purporting to change, uh, to, to reinterpret the New Testament to almost eliminate the need for somebody to respond to Christ in faith in order to be rescued, in order to be saved, in order to have relationship with God. What is driving that, frankly, is more an accommodation of culture and a fear of what others think as opposed to what is actually contained in the text of Scripture. It is true, friend, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, if you thought it was going to be easy to be a Christian, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but if you profess a belief that a person who dies without first reconciling to God will spend eternity apart from God, you will be seen by some as a kook. Some people in the world, if you tell them that you actually believe that if somebody, doesn't be, if somebody isn't reconciled to God, that they will spend eternity paying for their own sins because they decided to not let Jesus pay for their sins instead, they will look at you cross-eyed like you're crazy. Now, this isn't new to us. This was part of Paul's experience in the New Testament. Acts chapter 17, verses 32 through 34, the Apostle Paul speaking to the wisest of people in the city of Athens. And after he got done talking about the resurrection of the dead, it says in Acts chapter 17, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. There's three options. People are either going to respond and say, yeah, I believe this, or people are going to say, I need to hear some more about this, or some people are going to sneer. That's a reality, and we have to be able to face that. But my point in this is our job in sharing our faith, or evangelizing, is simply to gently share our own experience of being reconciled to God, and then share what Scripture teaches. The gospel is going to make some object. It will cause some to engage, though, in further conversation. And it will cause others to call out for the mercy of God in Christ. Our point in this whole nuts and bolts series has been to outline why we do certain things. And we believe that Scripture says we are called as believers to be sensitive to our opportunities to proclaim the gospel to those who would listen 
so that they can know Christ and the power of the gospel in their lives in this life and they can know and walk and enjoy God for all eternity. We believe the scripture teaches that eternity is at stake. Now you say, well, why do we believe that? Well, because Jesus actually said this. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, John 3, 16 has got to be one of the more familiar verses of the Bible to anybody. All you got to do is turn on a professional sporting contest. There's somebody in a rainbow wig holding a sign. Now what it says in John 3, 16, for those of you who didn't get raised in Christian school and had to memorize it early on, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It goes on to say in verses 17 and 18, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, I I didn't create the doctrine of evangelism. Nobody in our movement said, you know what we want to do? We want to irritate the culture by telling them that there is a literal hell and that they stand condemned if they don't respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus said. These are red letters, as some people like to create the New Testament dichotomy between the teachings of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus. You can't get away from this one, my red letter friends. Jesus is the one who said, whoever believes will be saved. And so we do have a responsibility as a church, as individual believers, to hold out the word of life, the broader question of why we do evangelism is rooted in the purpose of both Jesus' life and death. Today's passage from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21, is a detailed, really, treatment of both our responsibility to proclaim the gospel, the good news, the good news of God's reconciling us to himself, and our friends if they'll receive Christ. But it's also a great summation of what salvation entails in its totality. And this is a part of the Christian experience, the part of the Christian gospel, the, the real the understanding, the nuts and bolts of our faith. This is one of those things I didn't get literally until I went to seminary. I'd heard people like nibble around the edges of, the, of this truth that I'm going to talk about here from, from 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 but I I hadn't really comprehended it, and it's a critical component of being a believer. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this is the verse I'd like you to look at with me real quick. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, reconciliation to God involved dealing with our sin so sufficiently that God would no longer hold these sins against us. Now, he didn't just ignore them. He transferred the guilt and punishment of our collective sin onto Jesus so that Jesus literally became our sin. All of the weight, if we cumulatively dumped all of the sin of anybody who would ever believe that was piled onto Jesus... And he was crucified because of that. Because the Father needed to justly deal with those sins. Now the beautiful truth that I never understood was at that same time, 
the holiness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. All of Jesus' obedience to the law, all of his doing everything he was supposed to do and not doing everything he wasn't supposed to do, that was transferred onto us. We were given his righteousness. This is what makes us okay with God, not our own goodness, Nothing but the righteousness of Christ. I sang songs and hymns and stuff about it, but I never really comprehended that the truth be told is that we at the cross, the believers, past, present, and future, had our sins taken on Christ's shoulders and his righteousness was transferred to us. If you're looking for the technical term, systematic theology, double imputation. Matt taught me that. Now, I learned that 20 years ago, and Matt just learned it recently. It's a great concept, and that is this. We have given, imputed, credited to us the righteousness of Christ. Our sin, our shame, all credited to Jesus. You know, recently I was watching the Olympics, and uh, they, they end today. You know, actually, the closing ceremonies have already happened, if you read the internet. But at the same time, because they're way ahead of us in terms of the clock. But uh, there was a controversy about the women's figure skating. And yes, I watched the women's figure skating. And some of you men don't like to think that that's a very masculine thing to do. But when you've been married 23 years, you learn certain tricks. And that is, if you watch figure skating with your wife, she will be happier. And... Uh, and I watch and, and chuckle when they fall. So that's kind of like my sick twist on the whole thing is. And there's actually online, you can look up a drinking game. I'm not into drinking games, but they have a drinking game related to watching women's figure skating for men who watch figure skating with their spouses. It's, it's actually hilarious. Every time they fall, you get to take a shot. And it's pretty, you know, it's, it ends up becoming this party for everybody involved. Uh, the controversy was the Russian judges, and that was always the case when we were younger. But the judges kind of gave the title to a, a Russian when the, it looked like the South Korean uh, was better. She was the previous gold medal, and a lot of people thought she was robbed of this. And so to give you an idea of what imputation is really all about, imagine yourself in your current condition with your current skill level skating at the Olympics in Sochi. All right, so you get out on the ice, all right? Now, first, you know, the, the, the gold medalist, the person who was the most successful, the world champion in skating gets out there and skates flawlessly, perfectly. And then they sit down with their coach and they're smiling and the scores come up and it's zero, 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 zero all the way across the board. And then you go out there. And you mop up the ice with every jump. You fall. I mean, you sprawl all over the place. And then you get so tired by the end of the thing that you just collapse on a heap in the middle of the rink. And they actually tow your butt off the, the ice. All right. And then to everybody's surprise at the medal ceremony, you're standing there with a the gold medal around your neck. See, and this is really picturesque of what's taken place for all of us who feel like a a moral failure. We have no capacity to, to perform perfectly. There are no perfect tens in our world. In fact, some of us would be humble enough to admit that we are so morally incapable that we're like sprawled out on the proverbial ice. And what Christ has done is credited to us his perfection. The gold medal that you have, the, the right that you have to be in the presence of God is a gift 
from him. It's not just him dying for your sins. It's him crediting you with his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. This is the gospel. And our church's mission in its totality includes the proclamation of this gospel. If you've not heard me say it before, Prism Church exists to revive believers, to reach friends, and to renew culture. We believe believers are revived when they hear about the grace of God, when they understand in newer dimensions and at greater depths that God loves them and it's not attached to their obedience. We believe believers fall in love more deeply with Jesus the more we talk about his character and his majesty and his grace. And so we beat the grace drum to death because we think that's the motivating, the driving fuel of the Christian faith. That's what revives us. That's what, when we're broken and fallen, gives us life. But we think that we've been revived to an end. That end is in part to renew culture, to be involved in glorifying Jesus and making our world a better place and making his character known through our good works. But we also believe that a a critical component of that is reaching friends, evangelizing, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, our church's mission includes this. And for the month of March, we're going to take a look at and uh, really dissect how effective we could be personally as missionaries in our culture. And it's going to require your participation, but I'm going to guarantee you a couple of things I want you to be at ease. One is, we're not going to do any street evangelism. I'm not going to like haul you out to Pasadena City College and make you carry a cross around campus. I, I, I promise we're not going to hit the mall and sing songs or do anything that would make you feel like a real weirdo in our culture. All right? What we're talking about primarily is praying and asking God to open doors and, of opportunity and give us eyes to see the opportunities that already exist for us. I mean, as I mentioned in my blog, I'm not talking about us banging down somebody's door. I'm talking about God swinging that door open for us and somebody inviting us in. I'm talking about an opportunity to be used by God to share the gospel. And I will say this till my dying breath. There are more people out there that want to hear about the gospel than there are Christians willing to step out and talk about it. Without question, there are more people that want to hear it than there are Christians who are willing to share it. And so you and I have to think in terms of, okay, if we've got this mandate to do this, if this is a biblical imperative, beyond the biblical imperative, why do we do this? I mean, why would Paul command folks to be ambassadors for Christ? And that's what I really want to relatively briefly take you through from this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. And the, and the first reason that we would get involved in the process of, evangelism, process of evangelism is we're compelled to persuade by our experience with God. And this is what Paul communicates in verses 11 through 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 11 he says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. He goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So we've got this idea that that we have been rescued, that we've had this experience with God. We have actually shared in the love of God and so therefore we feel a sense of compulsion 
that we would try to persuade others to experience this too. We were rescued. Therefore, we know the realities of imminent death and joy, the joy of being saved from that imminent death. We wholeheartedly believe that Jesus actually had to die for a reason, and that reason was our sin. Because of the reality of what Jesus had to do, we're convinced that it is completely and otherwise proper for us to fear judgment and to experience relief in Christ. See, we know what it is to fear the Lord, not just from a sense that we were once rescued from a fear that we had that would be reasonable, but also we know in a relationship with God that there are times where it's appropriate for us to say, God wants me to do this, and so I probably should. In order for me to love God, I probably should obey God. See, and, and we know what it is, so we know what it is to want to please the Lord. We, won't, we know what it is to reverence the Lord, and so we attempt to persuade others. Paul, in verse 13 of this passage, was referencing how the culture oftentimes thought he was out of his mind. His critics in Corinth thought his message was either stupid or contrary to what real religion was supposed to be. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians. Paul's critics were all over the place, and they thought he was nuts. In verse 14, Paul says it's the love of God that is given to us. We are therefore compelled because of the love of God, convinced that he died for all. And in verse 15, it says we're compelled because once someone begins to walk with Jesus, we recognize that we are no longer our own. We are his servants. Once you follow Jesus, you realize that if he says, I want you to be somebody who is a mouthpiece of my love to other people, um, once you become his follower, you realize that you can't say to him, no, I, I'm going to opt out of that, per, uh, that section of your, your mission. I, I'm going to do whatever I really want. And, and what's at stake is, is that without us communicating this gospel to others, they will not be rescued. We are the means by which that takes place. In Romans chapter 8, verses 8 through 17, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. I begin with the second part of verse 8. What does that say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For me, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah wrote, Lord, who's believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. People aren't going to come to Jesus by osmosis. At some point in the experience of caring for people, of sharing our lives with them, of interacting with them, 
There is gonna come in a moment of truth where we have the opportunity to be the vehicle through whom which the gospel is proclaimed. In 1980, uh, the greatest moment, the greatest athletic moment in Olympic history and really athletic history in my life took place and that was the Miracle on Ice. If you've not seen the Disney film Miracle, rent it today. Um, you can actually watch the whole game on YouTube now, which is really odd to me, but because you couldn't see it live in 1980, you had to wait. It was on tape delay. I listened to the game on the radio, which I'll tell you just a little bit about how old I am. At the same time, it was exciting. And when they finally won the gold medal, uh, which was that the, the Miracle on Ice was a semifinal game, they won the gold medal couple days later and then they had the medal ceremony and the captain of the American hockey team Michael Ruzioni was the representative on the medal stand and he stood there and if you've not seen this, this is like one of the great moments in Olympic history he, he's standing there he gets the gold medal he's sta- he, they're singing the national anthem and at the end of the national anthem he sees all of his teammates standing in a line and he realizes that he's up on this podium having this experience all by himself and he doesn't want that he waves them all onto this podium with him. And they all come jogging across the ice and they all pile up on this podium and they're jumping up and down. And, and, and the, the image of Aruzioni saying, come on, come up here, you've got to see this, is burned in my head. This is a guy who said, I can't experience this without sharing it with you. And so they joined him. He invited them, he called them. This was something that was very exciting for him. He was compelled to do it. His experience said, this is something you've got to be a part of. This is what waits for you and me in our mission. The second thing, in addition to being compelled to persuade by our experiences with God, we're committed to evangelize by our position with God. In uh, verse 16, it says, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We see now from God's perspective. We are in a position now as the children of God, assuming you know Christ, you have now been given a new perspective on people. And so we don't, we're not permitted to just regard other people as we would have if we didn't know Jesus. We have to see them as, as objects of his love, as objects of his desire for relationship with them. In verse, six, uh, in verse 18 I'm sorry, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And this speaks to our new position with him. In verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he's gone from saying, you're just somebody I'm rescuing, and now he's turning over a ministry to you. He's saying, I have a ministry. You're going to be in charge of the ministry of reconciliation. He's given you a position in the church. So it's not just your position of seeing people from his perspective. He's literally given you a promotion. He's saying, I have a role for you. I have a position for you. And that position is as an ambassador. In verse 18, it says, I'm sorry, verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. He's committed this to us, it says in verse 19. The only way he communicates his gospel to people is through disciples, through followers, through people like you and me. We are the ambassadors. We are the ones who communicate the message of our king. 
And you and I have a privilege to do that. And another important truth contained in verses 20 and 21 is the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and God making His appeal through us. It's a position we have in Christ and His position is living in us. And this is what gives us power and confidence and and courage to, to proclaim truth and mostly to pray and ask God, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to be used by you? Open doors for me. Jesus said this in John 14, 15 through 18. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. See, he's called you and I because he is present in the believer. He's called you and I to be his mouthpiece. He wants to speak through us, not just to each other, but to those who need to hear and experience his love in the gospel. A couple quick closing thoughts. I went to Australia this past week and uh, missed you guys last weekend terribly. Uh, It's much more humid there than it is in Southern California. I'll take Southern California any day of the week. Americans are comfortable people. We are comfortable and we like not being made uncomfortable. And I know because I'm one of them. I am an American. The pace at which they move in Australia is much slower than we move here. It made me uncomfortable to sit for hours in a room with no television on with people I didn't know. I mean, just sitting there, waiting for somebody to ask me a question or waiting for something to happen. They just move at a slower pace. When you and I here don't feel like there's something for us in the room, we move on. They stay for hours. That's really uncomfortable. One of the big things I noticed almost immediately in getting off the plane in Sydney is they're not hyper-concerned about air conditioning in their hot, humid climate. In other words, I felt sticky in the airport at Sydney. See, here, every room you go into is air-conditioned and cooled to 70 degrees with no humidity. And that's the way we like it, nice and comfortable. I know I was already thinking, I want to go home, and I'd only been in Australia for about 10 minutes. As believers, you and I would agree, even as comfortable as we are as Christians, we would agree that in some areas of our life, If we were disobedient to God, we could expect some undesirable natural consequences. Whether it has to do with how we love our family or how we treat our employees or how we exercise self-control in our personal habits, we would all recognize that not following Jesus in these areas will either produce some natural consequences or that Jesus himself might actually step in and say, I want you to start treating your spouse better and I'm going to discipline you so that you'll follow me in this regard. All of us, with regards to the things we consider moral, would probably agree that there are consequences to disobedience to God. However, when it comes to the mission of God and evangelism, comfortable American Christians, and me being one of them, have often seen that the sharing of the gospel 
the being willing to be used to tell a coworker or a neighbor or a family member about Jesus, making myself available to them. We have said, some of us verbally, some of us non-verbally, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm just not going to be identified as one of those crazy Christians who talks to others about Jesus. Why, you ask? I think fear has a big part of it. Fear of what others think. I think part of it could be a lack of training, and so maybe you, have, uh, you lack some confidence that you could actually say the right thing at the right time. You're, you're open to being used by God, but you're almost afraid of what you get yourself into. You get in over your head, and you'd be like, ah! When I was in Australia, I was there to officiate the ceremony of a really good friend of mine who married an Australian Olympian, of all things. Uh, she was an All-American in track at the University of Nebraska. She was recruited from the continent down under to come to America where he was a strength and conditioning coach and love was, a love connection was made in the weight room at the University of Nebraska. And so, very happy for my friend and, and he said, listen, we'd like you to come and do the wedding and I was honored to fly over there. And that's, that's why I thought I was going. And who wouldn't want to do that? Go to Australia for a week, I thought the limit of this thing was going to be my involvement in the ceremony. And so from a spiritual standpoint, you know, I had uh, an idea of what I was going to do for the wedding service, a wedding service that I had done a hundred times before. To my surprise and delight, I went there and very few of the people associated with their families knew Jesus. In fact, Australia does not have the great number of gospel-centered churches that we have. A lot of their historic churches are empty and dying, including the one where I did the ceremony. And in the context of this ceremony, I got to share the gospel. And, and according to the bride and the groom, many of their friends and family said, this is, that was incredible, I, I've never heard that. Not just that, over the course of the couple of days, I had literally five different chances to talk to people about their relationship with Jesus. It was almost as if they were waiting for someone to come in across their path that they could talk to about their faith because they had questions. And now being an American in an Australian culture, that probably helped and made them feel a little less threatened. I don't know, but all I can tell you is that it was thrilling for me. Because see, here in Pasadena, when I try to initiate conversations with people about Jesus, oftentimes I'll get shut off like almost immediately. But over there, it was like they were just hungry to know the truth. And it taught me something really important. And that is that we've got to pray as a church that God would make people hungry for truth before we ever go out and try to make people swallow this. We, people have to want to hear the gospel. And, and in my case, like many of you who got involved in church because it sounded like really cool, like, okay, I'll meet Jesus and then I'll meet a bunch of Christian friends and we'll all hang out together. And now you're discovering that maybe God's got something more. He's got something for you that I, I call the mission from God. How many of you saw the Blues Brothers? We're on a mission from God. This is the exciting part of life. I went to Australia. I thought I was going to do a wedding I functioned like a missionary in this culture. It was awesome. And this is what God would hope for all of us right here. 
right where you are. He wants us to have that perspective. Each day an adventure, an opportunity, maybe somebody will want to hear what I have to say. Maybe somebody will let me. I'm an ambassador of Christ. I'd like to share this truth with them. Maybe you and I will, as a part of this 30-day experiment in March, see God move in a mighty way in our church. It's certainly what I'm praying for. So let's do so together today. Our Father, you've given us a mission, and it's a mission that we can't do. We, we can't make people believe. We can't make people want to believe. We can't make people hungry to know you, Jesus. You have to create all of those opportunities. But I do pray that you would help us this coming month to be sensitive to the, the ways, the doors you're going to open in our lives. That our church would be a church that would be teeming with new life. That we wouldn't just be a holy huddle or a cloister of believers who are trying to keep themselves isolated from the culture. That we'd be a, a group of people who were hungry to share the truth of your grace with others. It first starts with us knowing you, so I pray that you'd give us grace to enjoy you, and then, Father, courage to make ourselves available to you. For the month of March, Father, I ask for your greatest blessings on PRISM, that it's people, that your people here would make themselves available for you to do something remarkable in their hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.